Hey everyone. So before we get into the show, I wanted to let you all know that we were experiencing some audio difficulties during the recording of this episode. It definitely sounds wonky, but I hope you're still able to enjoy this episode. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Chindell, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So, chapter 20, and the worst title ever. <laughs> I hate this title. Show Cause Why. I I, it's just three words that are thrown together. Show Cause Why. I feel like she's trying to say something. Well, it's now that I've looked at it and read it, it's you need to show the cause why you do something. Show the cause for why you are doing something. Right. But it's the same. Show cause why. And I I think cause is as more as like because. Show because why. What? I don't know. Maybe that's just a mental block for me. I don't. I don't think that's a very good title. I would agree. I'm not quite sure how to boil it down to a couple words, though. I don't know. Let's get into the chapter and see if maybe we can come up with a better title as we go through. So one of the things I thought was that this was possibly a lecture first, and then it got written down. Oh, I could believe that. That's that's kind of the feel I get as reading it. Where, where it should be m- kind of more interactive with the speaker and the people and mm-hmm. where you, you, you feed off of them and that kind of thing. I get that feeling. Well, she has a couple main points she hits, and she elaborates on those points ad nauseum. But it's only a couple main points, I think. Either way, John and I are actually, you might not be able to tell, but we're actually really excited about this chapter. <laughs> And it was a feat of self-control to not talk about it before getting on the podcast. It was. We started a couple times and had to had to uh, stop ourselves until we were on mic. Because we don't like to talk about these before we sit down and start recording. Cause I don't want to talk about it twice. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it twice. It's that the, the conversation that we have the first time is more organic. Yeah. It's that we, I don't know what you think yet. And I'm excited to, to learn what you think. And I'd like to think the same is true with you, too, although who knows. Um, <laughs> I'm a woman. I'm not going to tell you. Right? <laughs> and I'm a man, so whatever. I don't know if any of that really matters. But, it, you know, the, the first conversation we have is typically better. That's why any of our shows that we've had to re-record have been... In our opinion, not as good. Right. I believe they're not as good as the original conversation that we tried to recreate. And maybe that's the problem is that we try and recreate the conversation. But it's the same text, so. Yeah. But anyway, so diving into this then. She brings up the question, why? And, you know, why do we wear linen underclothing? Why do we have numberless petticoats? Why do we have carpets and easy chairs and all manner of luxurious living? And... To bring about the question of we need to examine the things that are generally accepted. Mm -hmm. We need to get to the root of why something's done. And if it's an acceptable reason, sure. 
If it's an unacceptable reason, we can get rid of it. Reminds me a lot of minimalism, where the idea is you examine everything, and if you want to keep it, great. If you don't want to keep it, then get rid of it. But make sure you examine each item that you have, or each person that's in your life, and you examine it, and you ask that question deeply. Yeah. Well, there's two versions of why. She says there's the practical why, rather than the why does the wagtail wag its tail manner of problem. I had no idea what a wagtail was. So I looked up Mr. Ward Fowler. He was a prolific author about birds. Starting his one of his books was in 1895. But the wagtail is a type of bird that wags its tail. And they think that it might help flush out insects or act as a signal to others in the group or maybe a dominance display or to a potential predator saying, hey, I'm alert. You won't catch me. But for wagtails, those might apply, but they're not really clear as to why the wagtail actually wags its tail. Really? Yeah. So in the group of birds that wag their tail, these are some things that they think with other species. But for the wagtail... They don't know. It just wags its tail. Yeah. So that's the, the manner of problem of kind of an unanswerable question. So the latter issues in vain guesses and the pseudo knowledge which puffeth up. So you could have experts trying to say that they know, but really nobody actually knows. Right. So I don't know. It, it lent a lot more impact to that whole paragraph, knowing that. Having an actual, knowing what the word picture is. Yeah. So this, the question why that we are using is the poker to a dying fire. So it's beneficial in stirring up the embers and possibly fanning new life into a subject. Well, I think one of the reasons is we've talked a lot already about initial ideas. And when you ask the question why in this manner, you get to those initial ideas mm-hmm. and you find out what initial ideas are determining what you are doing. Yeah. So the question we, or the, the problem, not problem, the situation to which we are proposing the word why is examinations and schooling and purpose for schooling. And so she has this story about Tom Jones, who goes to school by, is sent to school by his parents to get educated, and with the hope that he gets a good place. And they say nothing about the delights of learning, or the glorious worlds of nature and thought, which his school studies will presumably prove an open sesame. It's just, you be a good boy, You get a good place in your class. So he does. And he wants to be the top boy in his class. And so he does. And it works. And he gets good places. And he gets scholarships. And he learns how to take exams. And the trick of exams is just as of their crafts. Where you learn what they're asking for and you learn what to do and how to do it. Which is a good skill to have in life. The, the, skill, the skill of knowing what somebody's asking for and being able to give it to them. Also knowing the format of a test and how to take an exam like that. I think about the, the SATs 
or professional engineering exams I took. They're all the same idea. And without understanding how the test is written and how to take the test, you're at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. But the question is, again, why? And she's not saying it's a bad thing necessarily. She's saying that exams as the goal is a bad thing. Right. Exams as the capstone to studies is a bad thing. Yeah. Well, and we are to grow in our children a love for learning. Learning is supposed to be a lifelong activity. It's not supposed to be something we do just to pass exams. So that was Tom, this, this boy who goes to school. She talks about girls. Girls are the same way. They, they go to school and they, they take exams and every exam is one goal towards, towards the next. And epic is kind of like that, that goal, that benchmark. And she says, you know, oh, or they say that it's better that they have those instead of nothing. She says, oh, sure, yes. But the fact that a successful examination of one sort or another is the goal towards which most of our young people are laboring with feverish haste and undue anxiety is one which possibly calls for the scrutiny of the investigating why. Yeah, and she starts this off by saying that people rarely accomplish beyond their own aims. So if your aim is to pass, then you'll pass. But if your aim is not to gain knowledge or gain a love for learning, then you won't gain knowledge or a love for learning. All you do is pass the exam. And I can agree with that firsthand. I don't know. I don't remember half the stuff I learned in college because I was not in college to learn things. I was in college to get the piece of paper so that I could go work because the field I work in has nothing to do with the education I got. But I needed the piece of paper to say that I got the education so that I could get licensed. So I don't remember anything about semiconductors or circuit boards or any of that. Well, then it's I got my degree in business administration with an emphasis on accounting. And if I was to actually pursue a career in accounting, I would have to, one, I legally have to go back to school again because my accounting degree only lasts for five years. But I would have to take it anyways because I don't remember it. Right. I don't know it. And laws have changed. But. <laughs> yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff to learn since then. But but even the basics of finance, I just, in one ear, out the other. Yeah. So, and I got A's. Yeah, I didn't. I know how to test. I, I learned this. This was me. I learned how to do the test and how to get the good grades. Well, I know how to test. And I think that's, I think that's the, for me, when I was in college, I didn't really care about the material. There were some classes I did really well in because I enjoyed them. Other classes I could care less about. And I made sure I just got whatever passing grade it was, whether it be a D plus or a C minus. But then when I did sit to take my professional engineering exam, I studied crap out of that. And I studied for a solid six to eight months. The kids and I actually took a vacation, a six-week vacation, so that so we would study. be out of the house so you could study and not have the additional parent-father responsibilities. Yeah. Well, parent-father-husband responsibilities. Right. And I studied a lot, but it, it got to the point that I knew all of that material, sat down and took the test and was done. And I passed and it was great. And even in the 
the testing room, I was sitting there twiddling my thumbs because I was done. But we still had a, it was in the morning session. It was a four hour session. I was done after one and a half. So I did it again and again and again. Finally was going, I'm just so bored. I've now done this test four times. And then in the second half, I did the same thing. And I left after like two and a half hours because I knew the material that well. But even then, a lot of the stuff on that test, I don't use day to day. I didn't learn it so that I could know it. I learned it so I could pass the test. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally see what she's saying here. You, people rarely accomplish beyond their own aims. If their aim is to pass, they pass. If your aim is to, to learn things, then you learn them. Mr. Ruskin, the, the gentleman who says that epigram, was a leading English art critic of the Victorian era, as well as an art patron, a draftsman, a watercolorist, a prominent social thinker, and a philanthropist. Wow. And he wrote a lot. And we'll talk about more, more about him actually later in this book, so I'm not going to go into him very much. Okay. Just a teaser there. He comes back. Well, she says, There are doubtless people who pass and who also know, but even so, it is open to question whether passing is the most direct, simple, natural, and efficacious way of securing knowledge, or whether the persons who pass and know are not those keen and original minds who would get blood out of stone or soap out of sawdust. Sap. Sap, sap out of sawdust. Sawdust. Whatever. <laughs> Reading's hard. So, you know, ev everything that we just talked about, there's, there's a giant Venn diagram of those who know things and those who can pass the test. And in the middle, there's this little sliver of those who know, know things and pass the test. So is testing really that great? Well, we're going to get into now what, what public examination does, what the effects of public examination is upon the learning environment. And first thing is it's a it's a grind. You you're testing, you know, maybe every year, maybe every other year for these national tests. Um, I I did a little bit of digging and I couldn't get super far into England's uh, examination system. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff was passed in 1920s. So before then, it was still public education was still becoming a thing, uh, moving from church public education to nationally funded education. Um, but they had a school certificate examination that you took at age 16, and you were graded fail, pass, credit, or distinction, and you had to get six passes, including English and math, to obtain a certificate. Um, and once you pass, you could either stay in school or and go on to take the higher school certificate or, you know, go get a job. The higher school certificate was taken at 18 or two years after, and it made it compulsory to study a broader range of subjects, even though some were strong in either the sciences or the arts. So you had to study everything. Interesting. And then on top of that was a... I didn't write that down, but it was a scholarship examination to go for money. Oh, I know why I didn't write it down, because it was more like in the 1950s. But it was a scholarship application to determine the best and the brightest to find out how to allocate money. But back to, back to this grind, 
The tendency of the grind is to imperil that individuality, which is the one incomparable precious birthright of each of us. The very fact of a public examination, the fact that it even exists, compels that all who go for the test must study in the same lines. Makes me think of a sporting event. And in a sporting event, if you're talking track and field, everyone who runs the 100-yard dash, you train for the 100-yard dash. And you train pretty much the same way as everyone else. You train to go fast. You lift weights, and you practice running fast. And at the end of the day, everyone can run fast. Some faster than others. There's a fastest and there's a slowest. But none of those guys that trained to run the 100-yard dash are going to win when you run the mile. Because the guys that train to do the mile are going to be the better at that. And they might not even be able to run something long, longer like a marathon. Right. I even think about football. Quarterbacks know how to throw the ball. Don't ask a quarterback to be an offensive lineman. No. He's not going to know what to do. And he's not going to be good at it. And so when you add public examinations, and she talks about that in just a minute here, when you add public examinations to your schooling, you turn schooling into a competition. And when you turn it into a competition... It's all about winning. Well, and the people who advocate for this examination say, oh, well, there's no restrictions on what you study. There's, there's no restrictions on how you study and what you study. But as a whole, whatever the exam is that the school gives, the momentum of the pupils and the staff goes towards that. And that's, that's what happens. And it's ruled by that style of questions. And... Dry as dust wins the day because it's easier and fairer to give marks upon definite facts than upon mere ebullitions of fancy or genius. It's easy to grade one plus one equals two. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say, what did Shakespeare mean in this? And go for a specific answer. And that's what the people teach. And so if you deviate from that, it's not seen as a good thing. It's much harder to to answer the question of why does 1 plus 1 equal 2? Because clearly 1 plus 1 equals 2. You get it right or wrong. But if you ask why, you're going to get all kinds of answers. So this comes about because of convenience mm -hmm. of a set syllabus that parents and teachers, both of them, are equally glad to avail themselves of. I was reading today, I've, I have the book Teaching from Rest by Sarah McKenzie. And it is a pretty short read. Um, I read it last year. I'm reading it again because it's always a good reminder at the beginning of the year. So this is, this is what she says about kind of teaching to the curriculum, the, the specific books and the specific schedule that you have. Here's a hard truth we might as well get used to. Much of the best learning cannot be proven, measured, or easily demonstrated. The kind of encounters that form our children's hearts, minds, and souls occur as they come in contact with great books and learn to ask hard questions, and their minds are trained to think logically and well. That's not easy to test. It, it cannot be proven, measured, or easily demonstrated. So how do you test it? And that's, that's where true learning comes and true knowledge. That's true. But yeah, so the... The exam itself, it's brought on by convenience because it's easy mm -hmm. and you can do it. 
the tyranny of the competitive examination is supported for the most part by parents. Not altogether. We don't say altogether. Teachers do their part manfully, but teachers unsupported by parents have no power. And the only thing they can present then is their own kids. But the whole system is forced upon the teachers, though perhaps not against their will, but by certain ugly qualities of human nature as manifested in parents. So the dark side of parenting comes out. Ignorance, idleness, vanity, avarice. Because they want to see their kid succeed and they need a they need a rubric to say my kid is doing well. Right. And if we can point to a thing and say, look, my child is first in his class, then that means our children are succeeding and therefore we are too. And that, that has that has trickle down effects, I mean, even to preschool and kindergarten. I, I've seen places that have very good play-based experiential learning have to send notes home to the parents and say, your child is not going to come home with a paper of like a coloring paper or a craft mm-hmm. or something, something to clutter up your refrigerator. They're not going to come home with that every day. Yeah. That is not true. Uh, that is not representative of true learning. And they've had to inform parents of that because we've been so, uh, Ingrained, indoctrinated to need physical evidence of learning, which is why there's so much paper involved. There was a a curriculum that I looked into and actually, I think I actually bought the, the hard copy of it because I really wanted to do it. And it started at age two. Just easy. It was easy stuff. Not, not a do this, sit down every day. It was kind of a guide to how to do stuff with your children. And we got through like two days of it and we're going, I have to print out all these papers and all we're doing is coloring. And he did not color. Yeah, he didn't like coloring. He did not like coloring until his sister did. He still doesn't really like coloring. And so the fact that I was printing out all these papers to show, you know, papers and papers and papers, I'm doing something. I, I was like, no, this this is this is not working. This is not right. I I no. So we moved on to something else and lived life because, you know, pretty soon after that, I had another kid and then another kid, and there was life. There was learning. <laughs> so she moves on to talk about. She says that uh, evil lives in the competition, not in the examination. So we touched on it a little bit. But that's the that's where the problem is. It's not the exams are bad. The exams are they are what they are. It's a way to test your knowledge, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. The problem comes in when it becomes a competition. She says probably work on a given syllabus tested by a final examination is the condition of definite knowledge and steady progress. All we contend for is that the examination should not be competitive. And I'm not really sure how to do that. This might be the perfect place to say that Charlotte Mason had exams for her schools. She did. After every term, there were examination questions. Yeah. But the the questions are very open-ended, and they are always two or three options for each question, or two or three 
options for each number, I guess. Mm. And it was to allow the student a chance to show what they know. To to put out the things that they know. So it was less for the school to prove to everybody else that they were doing good and more for the student to be able to see where they're at and, and show what they've learned. To show what they've learned, not even to show where they're at, just to show what they've learned. If you need more information about this, please go to a delectable education. They did the research. I have listened to their podcast and they're the ones who know things, but they never had, you know, study for the test times. It was always, or, or never like read the whole book again type thing. It was, sure. no, you, you know what you know. And if you don't know it, you don't know it. But tell me what you do know. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and so that's where she moves on to. She she does say that examinations are necessary. She says that they should include the whole school. And so she does she does talk about that. And then she says, you know, what is the purpose of having the exam and being able to to point to something that says I'm doing better. She says you know, it's it is a human being. It's a it's a need for a human being to aim for something. We all want to excel to do better than the rest whether in a tennis match or an examination. Now the several desires, power, wealth, society, excelling, knowledge, esteem are primary springs of action in every human being. Touch one, you play on that one, and you'll get a response. Whether it's knowing something or getting something or being admired or ruling or excelling, you, you appeal to that desire and a there will be a response. Mm -hmm. And these desires are neither virtuous nor vicious. They're common to us all. Yeah, I mean, they are what they are, and, and we all have them inborn in all of us and someone some of us lean more towards some of those than others but mm -hmm. they stimulate us to the constant effort which is the condition of progress and at the same time the condition of health and she equates it the principle of emulation the the wanting to be like something or better than somebody to that of respiration mm -hmm. and how necessary it is breathing yeah. you you do that every what, two or three times a second? Depends on what you're... No, that's a lot. That's a lot, but yes. Never mind. You do it a lot. <laughs> Multiple times in a minute. We'll go with that. <laughs> and you do it without thinking about it. You don't have to tell yourself to breathe in and breathe out. So why does why does she bring that up? Why, why does she start talking about... Why does she start talking about this? Because schools play upon one of those desires they they play upon that one chord through all the years of ed, of adolescence the the desire to um exceed and to excel and to pass the test she says that balance of character is destroyed by the constant sim stimulation of this one desire at the expense of the rest and she says hey hey by the way there's another one that's just as good well, what she talks about, though, is that children are innately curious. And she talks about that coming up here. The child wants to know. And so he asks and he asks and he asks. And his parents are going, oh, my gosh, stop asking. Stop asking why. I don't know the answers. You're killing me. 
And so, so at the school, you have the same thing. A teacher can't have 30 children all asking him why all the time. So they need to focus children on something to get them to shut up. Well, and the other thing is that it's, like you said, it's hard to do. The desire of knowledge is that spring of action most operative in Tommy's childhood, the, the nat- where nature has been active. And if you let his lessons approach him on those lines of his nature, you're not on the lines proper for certain subjects of instruction, and the little boy has no choice except he will learn and love learning. But not every schoolmaster, any more than any parents, is keen to give Tommy what he wants in this matter of needful knowledge. So they came up with a way to make the boys want to know that's easier. The desire of knowledge is not the only desire active in the young bosom. He wants to excel, to do better than the rest. So they replaced why with when. Oh, like when type, I want to win. Yeah, they replaced the child seeking to ask the question why and learn more with seeking to win, seeking to beat his peers. And and when that hit me, there's there's kind of a chain reaction. We're, we're raised to be competitive above all else, and winning is all that matters. And so we create ways to win. In years past, you only win if you are an athlete. Mm-hmm. Or you're at the top of your class. Well, now you can win by being an Instagram model. You can win by being an author. You can win by being a part of the shame police, by being the, the most wokest of woke people and calling out everyone's misdeeds. You can win by knowing the most about movies. There's There's a plethora of ways now that you can win at life. And so we all, having been conditioned only to care about winning and competing and doing better than anybody else, that's now our primary function. Be it business, be it home life, all that matters is winning. Parenting, the mommy wars. Children playing sports, all that matters is winning. So parents really get into it because winning is all that matters. That's honestly, I'm, I'm... as I've thought about this over the last couple of days, that's one of the reasons I think that the the wage gap between the the highest paid and the median income people has grown so drastically is because those people at the top are winning. And the more money that they receive, the more they win. And that's good. That's what we've ingrained in people is to win, win, win. And they're winning. So, of course, they're going to take more money, and of course, they're going to exploit the idiots who can't win, because that's their problem. They're not winning. Reminds me of Charlie Sheen and his winning. Charlie Sheen is an actor. Uh, he Two and a Half Men. Yeah, he his, his most recent role was on Two and a Half Men for a long time, and he played a parody of himself. He played a sleazeball drunkard, and had lots of money and was very talented and handsome and funny and and had a beach house and all of this. Well, that was a parody of his own life because he was a drunkard. He is a drunkard. He's a sleazeball. He's a druggie. But he has lots of money because he's good at acting and he's done a lot of of good movies throughout throughout his career. Well, he, he fell off the deep end because he was so concerned with winning. There was a commercial that ran at one point for the, uh, 
Oh, the Fiat. Yeah, it's the really little one. But he did a commercial about that where he was driving it around his house with his harem of supermodels. And at the end of the commercial, he put his leg out of the car and it had a secure, or had a, had a bracelet on it. A monitor one? Yeah, a monitor one. He was under house arrest. So he bought a car to drive around his house. And they were like, look, you can be like Charlie Sheen and own this car. That's going to make me, well, Charlie Sheen is winning. Because Charlie Sheen has all the money. He has all the drugs. He has all the women. So we have a culture in the United States right now of disparity because it's all about winning. So anyway, it's kind of a tangent, but, but I think that's the, that's the long game here of, of what she's talking about is that's where this ends up. And we've seen that over the last hundred years where the culture of winning has eroded values be it family values or personal values. The balance of character is destroyed by the constant stimulation of one desire at the expense of the rest. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I got ahead of us or not, um, but, but that's where, I think that's where she sees this going. And in her time, it wasn't there, so far as I know, but it definitely is now. Uh, I think it it's... It, everything is magnified because things are such things that time has become compressed. And so things are magnified, whether it's events that happen and we know about it, you know, a second later, events that happen on the other side of the world and yeah. we know about it two seconds later. Or, you know, something happens in school and by the time the kid gets home, everyone knows about it. Mm-hmm. And so it it makes these these things just that that much bigger so anyway uh long story short the schools have replaced having children ask why with having them strive to win Mm -hmm. cognitus is her her name that she gave this pedagogue who just quote unquote discovered this new and easy way of making people learn you know they will they will do it they'll do steady going quiet work with no fatigue Without the fatiguing excursions into the new fields, which craving knowledge leads. And he says, oh, the parents will be happy too, because they're a little vain, because their child who does well is dear. And so maybe this cognitus also saw the scholarships and the money awards that would help with the parents' pocketbook. And so parentus and cognitus walk together. Everyone's happy. Everyone's content. Nobody's worried. And a great deal of learning's got in. What more do you want? She says, just one thing, honored cognitus. That keen desire for knowledge, that same incessant why with which Tommy went to school. That's what we want. So we can't, we can't put our finger on this, this, uh, emulous guy. Probably this happened because of a consensus of opinion. Probably because of urgency on the part of the parents. Mm -hmm. But now our knowledge is advancing and it is full time that we reconsider our educational principles and recast our methods. We absolutely must get rid of the competitive examination system if we would not be reduced to the appalling mediocrity of which we see in China, for example, to have befallen an examination ridden empire. I did not look that up. I didn't want to 
dive into that. I feel like that might... I don't know what I would even Google for that. Right? Chinese education in the late 1800s? I don't know. It seems like a dated reference. But I guess if you were alive in the late 1800s and knew things about the world education, you'd go, oh, yeah, just like those Chinese. So then she, she ends with an exhortation. Let us begin our efforts by believing in one another, parents and teachers and teachers and parents. Both parents and teachers have the one desire, the advance of the child along the lines of character. Both grown equally under the limitations of the present system. Let us have courage, and united and concerted action will overthrow this juggernaut that we have made. And now we can apply it to our current situation in the United States. Mm -hmm. We have um, educational standards starting back with No Child Left Behind that use examinations as a means of distributing money. Right. And that that has led to, quote-unquote, teaching to the test. Yeah. And I, I Googled a couple of articles about that, and some people were like, well, first off, that's not quite defined very well. There's two ways, two ways of teaching to the test. Either you teach basically the exact materials, where the test question says, Johnny has five apples, Susie has three apples. How many apples do they have together? So your practice question is, you know, Susie has five bananas and Johnny has three bananas. Where it's the same problem, just different words. Mm -hmm. Where it's the item is the same. And then the other one was like, I think a, a curry curriculum kind of being the same, where you teach the general ideas and present that different ways. And somebody argued, you know, like we talked about earlier, teaching to the test is not a necessarily a bad thing. That's what you will be doing. Real estate exams, mm -hmm. PEs, professional exams teach to the test. Yeah. So you know that specific group of knowledge. Um, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, yes, but those are post-education years. Those, those tests happen after about age 18. Mm -hmm. And so before then, that should not be the way that you teach. Well, I mean, when you're talking about engineering, when you're talking about accounting, when you're talking about real estate, they want to test you to know that you understand the specifics of the profession you're getting into. So asking the specific questions makes sense. Do as a as a structural engineer, do you know how to properly design a bridge so it doesn't fall? As an electrical engineer, do I know how to correctly size a service so the building doesn't light on fire? As an accountant, do you really understand tax law? Do you know how to balance someone's books and keep them keep the IRS away? These are these are legitimate things. They're over such small bits of knowledge. And more than, at least for the engineering side, they're all open book exams to, to get your licensure as a, as a professional engineer. And so it's less the question of, do you know this material? And more of, do you know how to answer a question? And I, I know that the architectural exams aren't open book like that, but I know they're a lot the same where it's, do you, do you really know this material? 
Because if you if you learned it, then you'll be able to figure it out when you're designing stuff. So exams for adults are one thing. But again, it's not a competition. I'm not passing my PE to be better than anybody else. I'm passing my PE to get my stamp so that I can be a licensed engineer. And your passing of the PE does not affect the person sitting next to you, whether they pass or fail the PE. Basically, with those tests, is if you studied, you pass. If you didn't, you fail. But that's not the way to harbor a love of learning in our children. Because that is, that is one of the main goals as parents that we have, is that we want to grow in our children a love of learning. And a love of learning about things. To where she gives an example of uh, a boy who's taken to the beach by his parents. Let him spend a week there. And the boy's going to be able to tell you everything about the beach. Because he's, he's watched it. He's observed it. He's, he's absorbed it. And he can tell you about the tides that come in and what color things are. Which way the crabs walk and how many babies they have and what do they eat and you know, what, what the circle of life looks like on the beach. All of those things the child's going to be able to tell you because he's learned to learn. And that's what we want to instill in our children. And if, they, if they've learned how to learn, then they can learn how to take an exam. And they can learn how to study for an exam. But if they don't know how to learn, if all they know is how to compete to pass classes, then they're going to have a tough time in the rest of life. So I, I think her final exhortation here is, is on point. It is terribly hard to run counter to the current of the hour. But we are groaning equally, parents and teachers, under the limitations of this present system. So let us have courage, and united and concerted action will overthrow this juggernaut that we have made. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Thank you.